Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 16 today, a psalm that gets a fair amount of attention in the New Testament, as we'll see a little bit later. But first, we want to work our way through this psalm. It's a psalm of David. Uh, tells us it's a, a miktam of David. And then he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All right, let's pause there at the end of verse 6, and then we'll work our way through the second half of the psalm in a moment. First, notice that David begins uh, with a request for God, asking God to preserve him, uh, talking about the fact that he takes refuge in the Lord. This is a common theme that we see in the Psalms of finding refuge in God, of um, that he's our, our protector, our defender. And um, he says to the Lord in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there's that he doesn't see anything else in his life as good, like his his family or his uh, home or, you know, or the good things that God gives him. It's not that. What he's saying is that God is his greatest good. And without God, even those good things in one sense uh, would not be good to him without God, right? That God is what makes everything good. What gives him um, uh, is the one who gives him things that are good and is himself the greatest or highest good. It's similar to what um, it said later in, in Psalm 73, verse 25, uh, where the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So you are what I want above all. You are what I seek first and foremost. Um, that's what David is talking about here, that God is his greatest good, his chief good, the thing he desires above all. And he describes the Lord in verse 5 and 6 as his inheritance, his portion, his lot. Uh, he's using language similar to what we find earlier in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, when Israel uh, inherits the promised land and each tribe is given um, a lot of land, uh, it's uh, similar to, to that language, that concept, uh, which was significant right, for the nation of Israel. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, uh, it says, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So Aaron didn't get an inheritance of land, and that became true for the tribe of Levi as well, um, because God was their inheritance. God was their portion, and David is saying for the same thing about himself. The Lord is my portion. The Lord um, is my inheritance. He is, um, you know, what I treasure. Um, he is my um, you know, richest, um, you know, the, the greatest thing that I have, right? The greatest thing that I've been given is is getting to know God, be in fellowship with God. Um, Lamentations 3.24 says something similar. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Um, so again, David is just saying like almost the same thing in verses five and six that he said in verse two, that God is his greatest good, that God is his greatest treasure, as it were. Um, we can think of the hymn that says, you know, I'd rather have Jesus than, um, you know, 
houses, land, silver, gold, etc. Um, the, uh, the Lord is our, again, our greatest treasure. Um, then, and notice in between those two uh, ideas in verse three and four, he says that he delights in the saints, the godly ones, the people who fear and love God. But in verse in verse three, and then in verse four, he says, you know, those who turn to another god, those who turn to idols, I don't even, I, I want nothing to do with their idolatrous practices. I'm not going to take the names of their gods on my lips. I'm not going to do anything like that. And there, David is reflecting uh, what he said in Psalm 15, just before this psalm, um, in verse uh, four. He's talking about a, what a righteous person is like, a, a blameless person. And he says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And that's what David is saying about himself here, that he wants to be around people that love and fear God. David loves God. David uh, is seeking God. David wants to know God, and he wants to be around people, loves being around people who share that love for God. And he wants nothing to do with those who dishonor God through idolatry. It's, uh, he doesn't want to be associated with their worship. Um, it's not that he, you know, wouldn't, um, you know, love them as, you know, his neighbor, right? But he he doesn't want anything to do with their idolatrous practices or anything like that. Um, and then verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 7. He says, um, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in verse 7, he's talking about what God does for him. He receives counsel from God. Um, God, you know, speaks to him, uh, directs him, um, and uh, that's the same thing he's talking about. He says, you know, in the night also my heart instructs me. That appears to be just another way of saying God is, you know, directing me, speaking to me, teaching me. Um, so I'm receiving God's counsel. Um, verse 8, he says, I focus on the Lord and have nothing to fear. Right when he says, I've set the Lord always before me, that means that's where he's focused. That's, um, you know, he's aiming at knowing and honoring God. Um, and so then he says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I, I'm not, uh, going to be moved. I don't have anything to fear. Uh, verse nine, he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So my, my joy, my security, David says, come from the Lord. And then in verse 10, he says that, uh, you're not going to let death consume me, right? Uh, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to let um, death have victory over me. And then uh, finally, verse 11, he says uh, that true joy is found in God's presence, right? In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore, um, which is the opposite of what people normally think about God. Uh, people often think about God as, you know, kind of dour and sour and frowning at everybody all the time and that kind of thing would but the Bible says something quite the opposite, right? That God is the one who gives joy. God is the one uh, who gives um, peace. And uh, he says here, pleasure forevermore is in God's presence, right? The, um, delight, joy, all those things. Um, God created us to experience joy and pleasure and delight and 
and to be loved and to show love and all those kinds of things. But what he does in scripture is he warns us of the ways those things can be distorted and that we can be led away from him into false and fleeting pleasures instead of um, the lasting eternal pleasures that God offers and the ways that he warns us against the ways that we can um, be promised, uh, you know, false joys or pursue false joys instead of real, true and lasting joy that comes from knowing him and, and following him. So that's what he's talking about. Now, how does this all connected to Jesus? I mentioned earlier that uh, the New Testament uh, has quite a bit to say about this psalm. And so I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Um, this is what I call the first Christian sermon, because it's the first sermon that's recorded in Scripture after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Now his disciples are preaching to others, um, and Peter uh, gives a lengthy sermon uh, where he talks about Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death, uh, but focuses mainly on Jesus' resurrection. And he uses Psalm 16 to help um, confirm and affirm what has happened uh, to Jesus. While uh, Peter is bearing witness, right, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he says that David himself uh, spoke about these things. And he, so he says in, in uh, Acts 2, beginning verse 25, David says concerning him, that is concerning Jesus, as the Messiah, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Uh, that's a pretty significant quote, right, from Psalm 16. And then here's what Peter has to say about that. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So in other words, when David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, you won't let their body be corrupted um, as is normally experienced after death, Peter's saying, that can't be about David, because David's body is still in the tomb. That tomb is right here, and his bones are still there. Or, you know, maybe have turned to dust by now, but it, David's still in the tomb. His body did experience corruption, so he's not talking about himself. Who is he talking about? He says, being therefore a prophet, you don't often think about David as a prophet, but he was, right? God inspired him to write scripture and even to, um, to prophesy in some sense, right? We see uh, that in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. Uh, and then he says, so being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So that's God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that, one of his sons would reign on his throne forever. So knowing that and being a prophet, Peter says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. So he knew the Christ was going to come from his line, um, that the Christ was going to reign forever. And so he was speaking about, writing about the Christ, prophesying about the Christ uh, when he wrote in Psalm 16. And then Peter goes on that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus, of course, did not stay in the tomb. Uh, he was only there three days, and then he was resurrected. Uh, his body was raised and glorified. Um, and so he did not experience the corruption that comes uh, in the grave after death. Uh, then Peter goes on and says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And he keeps going, right? So um, Peter is saying, 
uh, th that psalm is ultimately about Jesus. It's clearly about Jesus. Now, there could be some sense in which those verses are still true for David, because David, because of his trust in God's promises, he's going to be resurrected at the return of Christ, uh, like all Christians will be. And so, you know, you could say, well, it's going to be fulfilled for him in the sense that, you know, he's not going to, um, not that he won't experience corruption because he has, um, but that will be overcome eventually. You could make that case. But most clearly, um, it is about Jesus and not about David, right? Jesus was literally did not experience corruption, right? But was raised from the dead. He was not consumed by death, but instead he conquered it. Right, so that, in particular, verse 10, is clearly about Jesus. Also, verse 11 um, fits quite clearly with Jesus as well. Hebrews 12, 2, talking about Jesus' crucifixion, um, he says, um, For the joy set that was set before him, he endured the cross. Right, So he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before Jesus when he was enduring the cross. It was the joy of being back in the Father's presence after his suffering, after his death. So, um, again, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. That's what Jesus was looking forward to, being back in the, uh, returning to the presence of the Father. Um, Jesus was also focused on his Father and therefore did not fear, like verse 9 uh, talks about, verse 8 and 9. I've set the Lord always before me, right? Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Right, um, skipping part of verse eight there, but you, you get the idea. Uh, that was true of Jesus. Really, you go over the whole psalm, and all of it fits with who Jesus is and what Jesus did, what Jesus experienced. So, what can we pray when we uh, work through Psalm sixteen? How can we pray from Psalm sixteen? We, we can confess our trust in the Lord, like David did, and in, in verse one, we can. Uh, confess that our that God is our greatest good, like David did in verse 2 and verse 5 and 6. We can rejoice in the security that we have in Christ because of his resurrection. Right? So it's not that we aren't going to die but or that our bodies won't experience corruption, but we know that because Jesus didn't, that one day when he returns, we'll be resurrected. We have that great hope and security in Christ. And then finally, remember that the goal is the presence of God is verse 11, being in God's presence, experiencing that fullness of joy, seeing his face. That's what we're aiming after. God bless.